Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. I'm joined today by Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James Bijan. And uh, today we're going to be continuing our walk through the book of James. Uh, to begin where we left off last week, uh, let me begin by reading James 1, 19 through 21, and then we'll move on past that as well. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So now we're uh, in the back half of the first chapter of James, and it's becoming uh, increasingly clear that these new Christians um, were under significant trials and temptations. There were temptations uh, potentially to think that God is the one who tempts them. There are temptations to potentially ease up their trials by giving way to the rich and so on. And James or Jacob has been encouraging these Christians to remember God, the father of lights who never changes and has brought them forth by his word. Uh, he's encouraged them to not be like Adam and Eve who were deceived and they sinned, but to be like the righteous one, the blessed one of Psalm 1, which is ultimately uh, Jesus Christ. And here, James gives some very short commands regarding hearing and speaking and anger. And uh, we know already that these early Christians were uh, tempted towards these characteristics. Um, they were tempted to, uh, from these verses, we can assume that they were tempted to be slow to hear, quick to speak quick to anger. And uh, as I read that, it's something that feels all too familiar in our modern age, especially in the age of social media. Uh, but to kick things off, uh, James brings the righteousness of God into the discussion here, something that there's been no shortage of ink spilled in the history of the church on this subject. So what is the righteousness of God here in James? And why does James bring this into the discussion when talking about slowness to speak and slowness to anger and being quick to hear. Well, I mean, maybe if I might just rewind slightly, just before we get to the whole, um, uh, yeah, righteousness of God issue. Of course. Yeah, no, I just wanted to have, have a look at, um, so I think one of the things that verse 19 is doing is picking up on this idea of uh, verse 15 and the kind of the progression there that's going on um there's a lot about maturing obviously in a positive sense in the um epistle of james and here there is talk about something maturing it's the same like teleo um root um but sin maturing so uh, desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is mature mm. full grown or something like that and bring brings forth death and I think the sense here is that wrongful actions start in the thought life. They they mm. start with the desire, um, with our in, intentions and so on. And, and they then become concrete when, I guess, we start to act on them, speak them forth, um, turn them into action. And, and that's when the sort of the vicious circle um, begins, I guess. And it, it seems to me that part of what James is picking up in verse 19 is to um the idea of nipping that in the bud if we if we're slow to speak um and later sort of slow to 
anger, then we can short circuit that whole um, progression. Things which are uh, desires can um, just stay as desires. They 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 don't um, work out and become concrete in that sense. And um, there's there's an interesting parallel, I think, to verse fifteen in the it's a slightly unusual uh, verse, but at the end of um, where are we? Proverbs uh, thirty. There's there's this text the. Um, uh, very last verse of Proverbs 30, uh, the pressing of milk um, brings forth curds and pressing the nose brings forth blood and pressing anger um, produces strife. And um, there, syntactically, it's, it's remarkably sort of similar in that triad. And, and there's this sense of growth um, in it as well. There... Um, the nose is just af, like the normal Hebrew for nose, and anger is then apaim, like sort of, uh, I guess, noses. But I mean, it, it's not, it's just, again, a word for nose. But there's that sense of the way the verse is phrased, there's that sense of escalation. And um, yeah, I, I think that here, being slow to speak is really not letting things um, escalate. I think that's a key thought in what follows as well. And bringing proverbs into the picture i think again we see this continual theme of speech as something that is connected to wisdom that wisdom is about weighing your words in the heart first and then your words not just babbling forth like the words of the fool um words that have not been considered or weighed or or applied properly in the proper context but words that just come easily and glibly um that speech is one of the touchstones of wisdom, and that will become an even stronger theme later on in the book of James. But here we see also that connection back to the desires of the heart. And so in Proverbs, we have the desires of the heart, the speech of the lips, and these things being connected in a nexus of wisdom, that speech needs to be weighed in the heart, it needs to be measured, and it needs to be um, controlled. And then when it comes forth, it can usher forth as wisdom and be something that is a profit and benefit to people around. The other thing that I think James is doing here, talking about that progression that you mentioned, James, is similar to what our Lord does in the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about the way that there is this sort of vicious cycle that begins in the heart in his teaching in the second half of chapter five of Matthew, you have this series of different problems where, for instance, the anger in the heart giving birth to murder or the lust in the heart giving birth to adultery. And it's recognizing the connection with that seed of desire and the sin that comes forth from it. And this, again, is related to a broader tradition of reflection upon the commandments and the way in which particularly the 10th commandment sheds light upon the desire that lies at the heart of all of the others, that if you do not deal with that heart desire issue, then the other sins tend to follow from that. And so primarily you need to deal with the loves and the desires and the impulses and passions of the heart. And as you deal with that, then you'll be able to nip these problems in the bud before they come to outward concrete expression. Which is again very proverbs esque, isn't it? Keep your heart with all vigilance, for um, what is it? From it flow forth all the issues of life. And again, there's that idea of producing, you know, producing forth. Yeah, and 
Proverbs also has this theme of listening and hearing. I think Alistair just said this and receiving from others without responding rashly. Um, it's, and that's because hearing, listening is the first posture that a wise man takes, not, not the stance of fighting. Path of wisdom is found in listening, not acting in anger. And so it, in some ways, it's surprising that James' advice to a church who's experienced such severe maltreatment is to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Uh, so to Christian communities suffering persecution, his, he, he's advocating caution, humility. Uh, well, maybe it's not surprising um, because this is Jesus' attitude throughout his life in response to enemies uh, that uh, threatened him and that um, that caused him pain and suffering. Um, but, it, but again, Proverbs is all about ruling and becoming wise and learning how to rule. And these brothers, oh, and I wanted to say something about that. I don't know what you guys think about this, but all through this book, James is addressing brothers he could have said brothers and sisters, and he says that actually in chapter two, but he doesn't. And he also uses common words for men, for males, like verse 12, blessed is the man and heir. And even in verse 19, it's anthropos in the first part of 19, but it's also then in verse 20, the anger of man there, that's, that's a male. And it seems like on the one hand, anger is something that men easily fall into. You know, we're, we're pugilists kind of at heart, even apart from sin, we're created to, to fight, to grapple with the earth, to take dominion. But of course, with sin, it becomes an even bigger problem for us. It becomes a problem for us. And it seems like these are the leaders, the men who are leading these communities, the brothers, the brotherhood of men. And they're the ones James is addressing because once again, if you lead, people will follow you. If you're a leader, you're supposed to be followed. And so uh, as it goes with the leaders, so it goes with the people and they are setting a very bad example. They themselves are not listening. They're talking too much. And in their talking, they're showing they're displaying their anger with their enemies, and that's not going to produce the righteous kingdom, the righteousness of God. That's not going to bring to pass. It's not going to make things right as God has promised to make things right in Jesus' kingdom. Connecting this with leadership as you do, Jeff, I'm reminded of the way that Edwin Friedman talks about reactivity and in a book that's often referenced in Theopolitan circles, uh, Failure of Nerve, he talks about the way in which there is a difference between reaction and response. In reaction, there is a sort of knee-jerk, something happens and there's a knee-jerk impulse, we do something that just acts back and we take the terms of what action has been acted towards us. So if we've been hit, we hit back. And it's something that arises directly from our passions. And it's something that 
happens most often when people are very closely bound together and fixated upon other parties and in the sort of emotional plasma, as he calls it, with them. They're not, there's no sense of differentiation. There's no um, setting apart and ruling of your own spirit. Your spirit is so bound up with everyone else's spirit that you will just stampede with whatever herd is stampeding. And what James is counseling here, I think, is very similar to what we see in someone like Friedman, the importance of mastering your own spirit. And that being seen in creating this break where when something happens towards you, you do not instantly react. Rather, you take the space to weigh that action and to consider and to deliberate and reflect and then to respond. And the act of the response is a self-determined act in a way that the reaction is not. The reaction is determined by what's happened towards you. And it's determined by your passions and other things like that, which just react to something. Whereas when you have learned self-control, you're able to respond. And it's an action that flows from your own freedom and weighing of what is the best course of action. And so I think what he counsels here being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, is very much about that process of self-mastery that does not leave us at the whim of everything that's done towards us. So our enemies can hate us and we can love in return. They can, we can respond not in kind. And I think this is very much a feature of Jesus' teaching, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, where if people act towards us in a particular way, they curse us, we can respond with blessing. Or if they treat us in a way that seeks to take from us, we can give as a free act something above what they requested. And so that freedom to act from a position that is not just determined by external factors, by the actions of the herd, by the fears and the anxieties that preoccupy other people, is a feature of wisdom and is something that I think is a sign of Christian maturity within James's understanding here. Yeah, that's helpful, Alistair. I was thinking about the slow to speak in primarily a negative sense, you know, make sure you don't say something stupid and and rash. And yet there's a real positive to it as well. Your um, response will be better thought out, better weighed and and measured and actually will have more weight with people. Um, When I think of people who are rare uh not rare uh slow to speak up on on certain uh political topics or any topics really um and they then do say something i i, I really pay attention in a way which i wouldn't with certain people who were just quick to give their opinion on absolutely everything so yeah th- there is that more positive thrust to this as well you both also mentioned the heart earlier and i i notice here that the first two commands that James gives in this section here in verse 19 actually have to do with the body. Right. And he, he first says, be quick to hear slow to speak, and then moves on to this emotional dimension of anger. Um, And it, it, it seems as if he directs his readers to root out their heart's anger by changing what they do with their ears and their mouths. So you're listening first, you're speaking only after deliberation, your body's participation in the sin of anger then can be gradually shifted. Uh, And so our heart will follow if we do 
with our ears and um, our lips. We keep our mouth clamped shut and our ears opened, then we will be slow to anger. And I think this goal of shaping body and soul is all about maturity. It's, you know, we can endure the, as Alistair said, we can endure the harsh words of others without anger. We can overlook an offense. And doing that is a very weighty and glorious thing. And in this patient, mature way, we imitate God. And I think that's what it's all about. I think that emphasis on the body that you mentioned is, yeah, it's a very interesting feature of Jesus' teaching as well, where if you want to deal with the sin of lust, it's not just dealing with it in the heart, in this more ethereal realm of thoughts and feelings. It's dealing with your right hand and your, your eye. It's dealing with those bodily members. It's dealing with those concrete occasions and opportunities and companions, whatever it is, these very grounded realities that can give you occasion and encouragement and means to sin. And as you root those things out, it's a lot easier to deal with the heart problems. I think it's the same with treasure. If you want your heart to be set upon the things of God, invest your treasure in the things of God, your time, your efforts, your identity, your um, wealth, whatever it is, and then you'll find your heart tends to follow your treasure. And so Christ's teaching, as James, is deeply practical. It's not just this um, dealing with the heart as if it were this abstract disembodied thing, but recognizing just how rooted it is within bodily practices and habits and how if we go for the habit, the heart can often follow as we transform the habit, the heart will start to shift in its loves and its instincts and desires. Yeah, exactly. And I'm also thinking of Jesus in Matthew 5, where he talks about anyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever says you fool, liable to hellfire. And his solution, his solution to that is for you to do something. So you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, leave it, go, go be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. I mean, it, it, it's fascinating. It, it doesn't just say, you know, stop and in your heart, uh, forgive that person, go face to face and deal with the person concretely and, and then come back and offer your gift. It's that kind of bodily response that oftentimes is missing in at least some, some, uh, some, some Christian churches where it becomes very Gnostic almost. Uh, you know, you can deal with everything in your quiet time. Well, not really. <laughs> Sometimes you got you to gotta get up and go somewhere. You got to do something. Um, and I think it's, it's similar here. You know, first of all, clamp your lips shut, listen to people carefully, and that way you're more likely to be slow to anger. Right. This is a great anti-Gnostic passage altogether. This is all 
physical requirements. It can sound a little ethereal, but we're told to be doers of the word in versus uh, verse 22. Uh, we don't want to be the one who's simply keeping things up in his or her head, just uh, kind of looking in the mirror all the time, but we want to be doers of the word. And this, this text ends in 27 with a very physical thing, which is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Yeah. And even in verse 21, the filthiness, the rampant malice that they're to put away, that's not just thoughts. Uh, the, we move through the book of James. There's some, some actions, some concrete things they're doing that they need to stop. And they're being quick to hear is receiving with meekness the implanted word, which is right. powerful to deliver their lives. So these are people that want deliverance. They want rescue. I think the way this is sometimes translated, you'd think it's just an individualistic thing about going to heaven. No, mm -hmm. they want their lives rescued. And this is the way to do it, not through angry speeches, not through malice and aggressive, violent behavior. This is the way. Oh, that sounds uh, Mandalorian, doesn't it? That's right. <laughs> it also seems to me that this gets at some of the logic of why we do liturgy. Liturgy is designed to train us within new habits, new attitudes and desires, and to develop some of those instincts will enable us in new situations to act differently than we would previously have done. And many of these things um, are looking far beyond the realm of the um, worship service, but the attitudes that will enable us to act within those situations in a new way can be first inculcated within the context of worship, and then from there flow out into other areas of life. One thing thought we really should discuss at this point is we're about over 20 minutes into this episode and we still haven't answered Brian's original question about the righteousness of God. I have not so what forgotten. does it mean? <laughs> well, I mean, maybe I can uh, jump in. I mean, I, I know that there is um, a tendency to um, think of this basically as um, faithfulness, you know, um, well, before we, say this um so the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of god or, or bring forth the righteousness of god so there's a lot in all this passage about what different things are going to result in what desire is going to bring forth what sin is going to bring forth etc now the anger some kind of anger some types of anger can bring forth um good things you know be angry and and do not sing sin um a, a right frustration um, at sin can lead to uh, sanctification and, and holiness. But here there is an anger, um, and as Jeff pointed out, it's, it's an anger associated with males, um, and it is not going to bring forth the righteousness um, of God. Now, um, I, I take probably this sort of anger to here to be, I, I associate that to be the anger that is going to bring forth ultimately um death and we're going to later look at you know you you argue you you quarrel you you kill kind of thing so uh, an anger that has a violence attached to it and i take then the righteousness of god basically be to be i guess god's um uh god's bringing people to justice um and 
I guess that was where I was going, was where where I was saying, I know there's a tendency to think of it in terms of faithfulness um, these days, God's faithfulness to do what he said he'll do. And I'm kind of fine with that on the one hand. On the other hand, I think that it either becomes sort of just too broad not to mean any uh, too broad that it doesn't actually mean that much because we can say it's God's faithfulness to do what he said and then what he said can kind of encompass anything that's said in scripture um so it either becomes too broad or it just becomes um i guess wrong in 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 my mind so i mean the righteousness of god in i'm thinking like end of romans 3 um particularly you know god wanted to show his righteousness by setting forth jesus on the cross um because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins you know um and so the What's called into question, as I see it, at least in Romans 3, is God's um, God's sense of justice. You know, he has passed over sins and apparently turned a blind eye to it. And God wants to show uh, against that backdrop that he is righteous, you know, that, that he does punish sin, that he is a just God. And the same concern is, I think, probably in the very next verse, you know, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in, in Jesus. I think what's in question there isn't so much God's um, faithfulness to his promises, but um, his justice. You know, how is it that God can be just, um, holy, etc., and yet justify those who are ungodly, you know, who, who, who have sinned? And so, you know, I'm not sort of completely wanting to discount this idea that it has to do with God's faithfulness, but I do want to say that very often its focus is, on God's justice, you know, his his holiness, his punishment of sin. And I think that the anger of man, you know, um, is going to want to take things into man's own hands um, and rioting and violence and so forth. And that's not going to be in keeping with God's, with the way God wants to mete out justice, which will be in, in his good time and in his way. I think it's worth reflecting on the way in which within our culture, rage has been increasingly seen as a transformative force, particularly on the left. And so you have a number of books recently that have been written about women's rage and how women's rage is this important political force or within racial debates. Um, And in the face of actual injustice, rage can feel like the appropriate response. And so giving rage and anger, its full expression and outlet can seem cathartic. And it can also seem maybe this is the way we're going to change things. Maybe this power that brings us together, that gets us really worked up, that gets people moving and animated. Maybe this is what's going to change the world. And it's understandable that people feel that. Rage and anger are powerful things. And there are, of course, righteous forms of anger. But yet, the warning that James gives here, I think, is an important one to bear in mind for a society like ours that does feel the attraction of these forces as potential transform transformative forces for society that is felt to be riddled with injustice. If we just got angry enough, if we just got um, motivated enough by our rage and all got together, we could change things. And yet that is a very dangerous force to be playing with. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, both James and you, Alistair, 
hit on an important dimension, I think, of righteousness, and that is justice. That's why my paraphrase of this verse 20 would be, the anger of man does not make things right, as God has promised to make things right in Christ. So God has promised to make things right, to be faithful, to bring, to deliver justice, and to, li- to deliver his people. So James knows that God has promised to make good on his promise, okay, to deliver his people from their enemies. And his readers know this, and they long for it. Jesus was talking about all through his ministry, the coming kingdom. It's near the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God. Um, And this is exactly what they're not experiencing. Okay. They're experiencing something that appears to be contrary to that hope. Things aren't right for the church. They're scattered. Uh, They're experiencing the the wrath of these unbelieving Jewish authorities. And they want justice. And as Elser says, this is not the way to transform the world. There is an expectation, again, as we read on at the end of James 3, an expectation from them of a harvest of righteousness. But that harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's the wisdom from above. And it's different from the demonic earthly wisdom from below, which seeks to accomplish justice um, themselves and to to mete out justice against their enemies. I I do think this passage really is pivotal for understanding the whole book. Everything kind of comes into focus when you recognize that in their frustration with their current situation, they hope to enact the justice, the righteousness of God. And there's, it's, it's hard not to see here that the ways of the Jewish zealots of their day have not influenced them. So the zealots responded to the Roman oppression in, these, in, in ways that they're responding to the oppression from the Jewish elites. So and it, it, it's, it's surprising to me, too, I guess, that I'd never seen this before until I started working on this commentary of how, how much of this you see in the book of Acts when the council calls in the apostles and they, uh, various members get up. I can't remember who it, wa- it was. Maybe it's Gamaliel. Maybe it's someone else. I don't remember. I think it's Acts chapter 5. And they're talking about what to do with this group this group. And yeah, it is Gamaliel. And he he starts talking about these various insurrectionist movements, uh, Theodos and Judas the Galilean, and uh, how they all perished and were scattered. And, And so there's this culture of oppression, not oppression, this culture of kind of guerrilla warfare against oppressors. And the Jews thought, of course, that the Romans were oppressors and weren't listening to God to submit to them. And so that, that foments this kind of activity. It seems to me like this is exactly the, the bad influence on the early church that James is trying to correct. Yeah. And Jeff, I mean, it's, it's present in the disciples. I mean, isn't it, in fact, James 
himself, who when the um, Samaritan village doesn't accept Jesus, says, you know, Lord, do you want us to uh, cool down fire? <laughs> you know, and, and so um, it's a yeah, remarkable, yeah. Yeah, it's a remarkable transformation then for James now to be um, counselling, you know, a, a rather cooler temperament, isn't it? Yeah, and Peter wants to cut off the ear, well, wants to do more than cut off the ear of the high priest. He probably just missed, uh, you know, so, so there's this, there's this uh, spirit of, of uh, guerrilla warfare, if you will, against the, their enemies that Jesus has to quell. Um, and look, if, if they were to behave in this way and actually win the war against the Jewish elites, unbelieving apostates who were fighting against them, well, then they would be just like them. I mean, Jesus, it seems to be the case. It doesn't seem to be, It is the case that Jesus was trying to train up leadership that would lead in a new, different way. Remember Mark chapter 10. Uh, you know, actually, the mother of James and John <laughs> come to Jesus, say, we want, you, we want you to make sure they sit on your right and left. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. You are, are, you, are they willing to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they both say, oh, yeah. And Jesus says, okay, you will. Uh, but look, guys, we don't, we don't rule like the Gentiles who lord it over people. If anyone wants to be first, he needs to be servant of all. Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so James himself was getting a little lesson there from Jesus about ruling and about the means uh, that he has to, uh, to bring his disciples into this position of rule and of, of, uh, of authority. There's also some interesting connections here behind the veil of Relating this back to Jacob again, I think it's going to be helpful to revisit the story of Jacob throughout this entire book. But being quick to hear, you know, if uh, you know, Isaac had been quick to hear and had been a doer of the word, um, he would have blessed Jacob instead of trying to bless his brother. And and you know, think about being slow to speak. Think about. Esau coming in and trading off his birthright, uh, slow to anger. You know, Esau is angry after he loses out on the blessing. Someone who looks at a, a mirror and then walks away forgetting what he looks like, that reminds us of Isaac, whose eyes were dim when he was going to potentially disobey the Lord and give the blessing to Esau. So there's a lot of things that are pretty fun to, to tease out from the life of Jacob as well. Yeah. And I find it interesting that the um, remedy here is to receive um, with meekness the, the engrafted, is it, or, or Im, implanted or, or, or something. It's, it's, um, it's, again, quite an agricultural term. Um, I think the same root sort of crops up in, um, in Luke's um, version of the, the parable of the sower, you know, the, the seed, like a, as it grows up, um, some of it goes into some of it wither, some of it goes into uh, good soil, and, and it, it's surely this idea of of soaking um, in scripture, and even if, if it's in a slightly unconscious way, just just letting that shape and mould our our characters. You know, I I I must say, days when um, in the morning, I, I, I rush my time of, of scripture reading and, and think, well, 
I don't know, I'm going to a, a Bible study in the morning anyway, so that will sort of make up for it or something. Day, days when um, I, I sort of skip things in the morning, I, I start acting differently late, later in the day. That that um, uh, failure to sort of engraft uh, the word, I, I think, soon manifests itself. And, and even when we're not hugely conscious of how it's changing us, that regular scripture reading is changing us it's engrafting that word within our uh, characters and that way of thinking about our relationship to the word i think is maybe shaped by a, a specifically new covenant understanding of the law written upon the heart and as we've discussed in various other occasions on this um show that we have this movement in scripture from the word that is primarily directed to us from without ourselves, to the word that's taken within ourselves. We ruminate upon it and meditate upon it. We take it within ourselves and it, it conscripts our voices, our feelings, our emotions, our loves and passions as we bring it forth in song. It is something that is eaten or consumed by the prophet. And in the new covenant, it's written upon our hearts. And it seems that that is the sort of relationship with the word that James has in view, that the word is not just some outs, uh, some word outside of us that we just give our assent to. It's a word that we meditate upon. We become the soil that it grows within and we meditate upon it and we become like that tree that's described in, um, in Psalm 1 that grows and puts forth its, its um, branches and leaves and its fruit and that growth that we need to have, the growth that is the alternative to the growth and wickedness from the desires giving birth to sin, will come from this implanted word. It's not the seed of the temptation. It's the seed of the word of the Lord's promise. And as that takes root within our hearts, it will give birth to deeds. We don't just hear it, we become doers. And that natural movement is one that is illustrated by the person who looks at their face in the mirror and is changed by that. And this image, I think, and this focus upon hearing and doing is so um, reminiscent of the teaching, again, that our Lord gives in the Sermon on the Mount at the very end and climax, the hearer and the doer, the one who builds their life upon the words of Christ and the one who goes away and forgets and does not act in terms of the Lord's word. We see that distinction drawn to a very high fine point at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And here, James is pressing the same issue, the way in which that growth needs to flow from the implanted word to this number of these number of different forms of doing the word and concrete action that corresponds to the growth of that seed. So it appears as if the mirror in verse 23 is, in fact, the word of God. But the, the problem, the, the challenge here is that there's this man who looks repeatedly. I think the best way to translate this is repeatedly at his beginning face. So this is a man who repeatedly looks at his face uh, and it doesn't change. There's no movement. There's no progression. There's no maturity. And he forgets what he looks like and walks away and comes back again. And it's the same, the same way. So it's a dangerous thing. I think self-delusion 
the self-delusion here is something that I think every Christian ought to take very seriously. I mean, there's a lot of warnings in the New Testament against false doctrine and false teaching, but this possibility of self-deception, this is frightening. It's quite scary. How do we know whether we're being deceived or deceiving ourselves, deluding ourselves? And it appears like the way to know that we're not is whether we're making some progress in what we do, how we act. We're looking at the mature law, the law that brings real liberty, and we're persevering. Uh, and we're not just listening, we're acting. And in acting, we'll be blessed in our doing. Uh, so it requires some self-evaluation, not just of our thoughts, of our doctrine, of our life, or even our feelings, our heart, but how is this working out in our lives? What, how are we acting? Uh, again, back to Sermon on the Mount kind of stuff. Many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do this or that in your name? But uh, he'll say, away from me, you who practice uh, unrighteousness, or I can't remember exact words, uh, and it's, it's all about their behavior. What was that again? Yeah. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Um, and here, James is encouraging us to be keepers of the mature instruction, probably referring to the words of Jesus, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. Reflecting upon James's illustration, I'm minded of just the fact that recognizing yourself in a mirror is one of the basic stages of childhood development. At an early stage in the child's life, they should be able to look into the mirror and recognize that it's themselves looking back. And that perfect mirror will give a clear reflection and tell them very clearly who they are. And recognizing yourself in the mirror is also a structure of subjectivity. As you see yourself in the mirror, you come to an understanding of yourself in terms of what you see reflected back at you. And so Every day we can look in the mirror and we can think about what we see and we um, modify our appearance to tidy up our, you know, comb our hair or wash our face to make sure that we appear as we ought to appear to the world. And there's something about that that is essential, not just to the presentation that we give of ourselves, but even of our self-understanding. The mirror gives a unity to our um, image of ourselves and it also gives a sense of... Uh, subjective recognition that there's a reflexivity to that and what the law of god's word does is something similar for the christian there's a natural stage of development when we look into the word of god and we recognize ourselves within it and if we're not recognizing ourselves within it something is severely amiss and part of the task of growing as a christian is learning to recognize with crisper vision ourselves represented within that mirror to see the spots and the blemishes on our countenance as we see the perfect law of liberty that reflects our faces back to us and the more that we are aware of that the more that we'll come to a true knowledge of ourselves that reflexivity in our in our christian knowledge of ourselves is something that is also an important theme in theology you can think about calvin's discussion of the reflexivity of the knowledge of god and knowledge of ourselves at the beginning of book one of the institutes 
it's so important that we have this mirror that gives us a clear sense of who we are and in giving us a clear sense of who we are helps us to be transformed in our appearance to the one that we are to to reflect now that complicates the image somewhat but i think it can be helpful to think about this in terms of the very basic stages of human development into subjectivity and into maturity because this is the same thing that needs to happen for the christian i've been intrigued to know why you think there is the mention of the law of liberty um here in james you know it, it's a uh, um term or at least a particular term liberty or, or freedom which i kind of get the way it's used let's say in galatians where there are those trying to um, restrict the believers liberty and then paul can go on to say how christ has set us um free for liberty but we're to use our liberty you know um, so we have that freedom but we're to use it not as an opportunity uh, for the flesh but to love and, and and so forth um it's less clear to me why james refers particularly to the law of liberty here there are kind of quite different concerns to say galatians or, or the way liberty is to be used about eating food sacrificed to idols in 1 corinthians 10 or something so yeah i'd be i'd be keen to hear your thoughts on that could it be here again in historical context that these people long to be free to be free from oppression to come into the kingdom that jesus has promised the kingdom of justice and uh, experience liberation and it's the mature instruction of Jesus that will bring that about. Nothing else. You notice also in, in verse 8 of chapter 2, uh, it's the royal law. So it's the law for kings, for rulers, and connecting up again with maturity, with Proverbs, with rule, with everything these folks want and believe Jesus has promised them. Uh, well, it's in Jesus' mature instruction that they're going to find that, of course, and also uh, as he has processed for us the law, particularly the law, the moral law of God. Does that make right, sense? Right. Yeah, yeah. So so true liberty, I guess, is not through um, insurrection and, and so on, you know, the natural tendency, but through, yeah, the mastery of the of the self and self self-correction in in yeah looking into the law of liberty yeah it does make sense you, sh you should write a book on this jeff it's not bad <laughs> i'm also minded of um places like romans 8 verse 2 the law of the spirit of life has set you free in christ jesus from the law of sin and death there is something about the law in the new covenant as it comes to us with the spirits writing the law upon our hearts that is inherently liberating the law is not just this external demand upon us. It's an internal impulse and empowerment to act in accordance with God's will and also in accordance with our true created nature. And so as such, it is truly liberating. And the more that we meditate upon that and reflect upon it, the more that we are transformed by that, the more that we give ourselves to that law, the more that we'll find that we are um, people who act as a matter of course. This is not just something that we do force ourselves to do. 
the acting will flow quite freely from the desires and the impulses of the heart that have been transformed by meditating upon the word of God and his, by his spirit. And that blessing in turn will follow upon that. And it, it seems that um, reading James's understanding of the law in terms of the gift of the spirit at Pentecost, for instance, which corresponds with the gift of the law at Sinai, but is the gift of the law in the internal writing of the law upon the heart in a way that empowers people to fulfill what was formerly um, not fulfilled due to the weakness of the flesh. I think that maybe gives us some sort of purchase upon what he's thinking about in terms of the perfect law, the law of liberty. Yeah, I like that. That's that's good. This is one of those places where <laughs> the uh, overly narrow dichotomy law and gospel just doesn't work. You know, I, I love my Lutheran friends, but every time you see the word law or namas, you, you can't just read into it um, something that only brings condemnation so and drives us to Christ. This is the law that brings maturity and liberty and freedom. It, it's, it's, it reminds me again of Matthew, the, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going around, remember, and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And that's at the end of chapter four in Matthew, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And then seeing the crowds, he heads up on the mountain and he sits down and he explains the gospel of the kingdom. And what he does is give instruction about how to live, about how obviously a faithful living in this new kingdom that's coming. Uh, and this is what James is talking about here. Uh, the perfect, the mature instruction, I believe, is mainly Jesus' instruction. And this law of liberty, this instruction that brings freedom, is Jesus' words, Jesus' instruction. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.